You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I stumbled upon an old chain letter this week. Does anyone here remember chain letters? Yeah. I came across one of those, and I'd like to share it with you, although I hope it doesn't speak to you. Listen to this. Do you wish you had a better pastor? Simply send a copy of this letter to six other churches who are tired of their ministers. Then bundle up your pastor, send him to the church at the top of the list. Add your name to the bottom of the list, and one week's time you will receive 16,346 ministers, and one of them should make you happy. Have faith in this letter. One man broke the chain, and he got his old pastor back. <laughs> when we began our journey here through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Paul's defense of his ministry, I opened this section with an observation that the perfect pastor is really hard to find. He is hard to find, Uh, mostly because we all bring our own expectations to the table. When we look for a pastor, we might be tempted to think that a pastor has failed his calling if he doesn't live up to our standards and our preferences and every expectation that we have. So we began this series with the question, how do we know if our pastor is cutting muster? How do you know, especially when the expectations aren't being met, at least not in the way that we like, and we start to hear things from other people, whispers. We we might hear that, you know, from this person over here that they're disappointed because, you know, the pastor did this or he didn't do that. Or, Or what if someone assumes the worst and accuses leadership of things that simply aren't true? They're not there, they're not in the room, but they're able to connect the dots and they have a a special spiritual gift of insight and somehow they know what's going on when no one else does. What do we do in those cases? How do we quiet our hearts and sift through the, the slander and the speculation and even sometimes the lies in order to arrive at the truth when our pastor is simply just a man? He has feet of clay. He fails to be all things to all men at all times. What do we do? That's a common problem, a very common problem, even in good churches. And that is exactly what Paul is dealing with here in this chapter of this letter to the Thessalonians. People are hurt. They're starting to whisper. They're starting to wonder, why doesn't Paul really care about us? Where is he? I mean, obviously, he is a lousy pastor because he literally abandoned them. As soon as the heat got cranked on, as soon as, as soon as the persecution came, where's Paul? Why did he leave? Why did he abandon us? He's not meeting our needs. After all, if he really loved us, he would at least write once in a while. The, old, the, the New Testament equivalent back in the first century of picking up the phone and just giving a simple call. So Paul must be in the ministry for all of the wrong reasons. He must be there to promote himself, to promote Paul He came, he got what he wanted, and he left. What a jerk. What a jerk. It's enough to break any shepherd's heart. 
But here you have Paul. Paul, arguably the hardest working pastor, missionary, and church planner in the world of all time, being accused of laziness and greed and manipulation and cowardice and, and, and coldness towards the people of the church. It's unheard of, and yet it's happening. And once he hears about all of this, he has to pause long enough. He has to stop what he's doing to publicly address these accusations and defend himself. And in doing so, he provides this profile for a faithful shepherd that we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've talked a lot about what it means to be a faithful shepherd. And Paul has highlighted his integrity by setting the record straight and appealing to their experience. In verse 1, he says, for you yourselves know. In verse 2, he says, as you know. In verse 5, he says, as you know. In verse 9, he says, for you remember. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. And then now in verse 11, he says, for you know how. Over and over and over again, he appeals to their memory. He appeals to their experiences. He reminds them of his integrity and his approach to ministry. Because he worked so hard while he was there, while he was with them, to display the inner workings of his heart, to reverse his chest, to pull it all out from the inside to the outside. While he was with them, he wanted it to be clear. My motives are right. I'm here for you. But here in verse 11, he makes a, a subtle shift from defending his motives and his methodology and ministry to defining the nuts and the bolts of ministry itself. He goes from defending his motives to defining his ministry. He says, as a shepherd, we did everything that God had called us to do. We did our job, and we did it faithfully. And in doing so, he then goes on to define the actual job for a faithful shepherd. You see, it really comes down to two things. Two things. The pastor, the elder, the overseer is commissioned by God for two specific tasks. So what does a spiritual shepherd do? He does two things, feeding and leading. That's it. Everything else falls under that purview, under that canopy of these two primary tasks, leading and feeding. He leads and feeds the sheep by proclaiming the word, being an example and doing the hard stuff to care for the church. He is a leader and a feeder. And that is what Paul highlights in the next several verses that we are going to look at over the next few weeks. Last week, we looked at the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate servant leader, the leader feeder of all time, the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Today and next time, we are going to look at the pastor's leadership. So I may have made a mistake earlier when I said there are no changes to your bulletin. You can go ahead and write part one at the end of the title. In verse 13 and following, we'll then see the importance of feeding the flock, God's word, because these are the two unique responsibilities the elders have. I mean, this is what sets elders apart. This is what's different about them from everybody else as far as their accountability before the Lord goes in terms of what they are responsible for. I mean, think about it. We are all called to pursue holiness. We are all called to share our faith and to follow Christ. Everyone is called to do that, but not everyone is commissioned by God to feed and lead 
his sheep. And I, I should say that most of you should say amen to that. I mean, amen that not everyone is called for that purpose. So let's see what that purpose is all about. Let's look at that first aspect of leadership. And let's see what it looks like here in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So please follow along as I read it for us. Paul says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, these two verses, they contain a lot. They contain the nuts and bolts of pastoral ministry. They tell us what a pastor is supposed to do, how he is supposed to do it, and why. And so I have divided the text into three sections with three headings. That way we have something to hang our thoughts on as we dive into the how, the what, and the why of pastoral ministry. Paul is ready to tell us what it takes to be a faithful man of God. And he begins with the guardianship of pastoral ministry. That's the first heading, the guardianship of pastoral ministry. Look at verse 11. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children. This is the how of pastoral ministry. This is the manner, the way that they fulfilled their calling. He says, for you know how. Here's how we ministered to you. We came to you like a father, like fathers who would treat their own kids. That's how we treated you. There's a lot packed into that statement, and it assumes a thing or two about fatherhood. When I was a kid, my driver's ed instructor controlled the radio. He would not share it with anyone. It was, a, it was a hard drive. Until the last day of class, he let us put in whatever tape we wanted. And I remember vividly what I listened to. I will not share it with you today. <laughs> but he controlled the radio. And every week, he would have us listen to Paul Harvey. All right. Wow, that got an amen. He got a few amens. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but here's what Paul Harvey had to say about that about fathers and what they're made of. Listen to this. He said, A father is a thing that growls when it feels good and laughs very loudly when it's scared half to death. A father never feels entirely worthy of the worship he has in a child's eyes. He never, he's never quite the hero his daughter thinks, never quite the man his son believes him to be, and this worries him sometimes. So he works too hard to try and smooth the rough, rough places in the road for those of his own who will follow him. A father is a thing that gets very angry when the first school grades aren't as good as he thinks they should be. He scolds his son, though he knows it's the teacher's fault. Fathers give their daughters away to other men who aren't nearly good enough so they can have grandchildren who are smarter than everyone else's. Fathers make bets with insurance companies about who will live the longest. Though they know the odds, they keep right on betting, and one day they'll lose. He adds, I don't know where fathers go when they die, but I have an idea that after a good rest, wherever it is, he won't be happy unless there's work to do. He won't just sit on a cloud and wait for the girl he's loved and the children she's born. He'll be busy there too, repairing the streets, oiling the gates, improving the stairs 
and smoothing the way. Now, I know nothing about Paul Harvey's theology. I don't. And obviously, he gets a few things wrong there. But what's implied in his little monologue is this universal, overwhelming sense of love and responsibility that is appropriate for a father. A father is expected to work hard, to scold his kids, to lead the way. And in doing so, he brings balance to the family dynamic. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at verse 7, where Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. I titled that message, The Gentle Shepherd, because spiritual leaders are to be gentle and affectionate like only a mother can be. But in verse 11, Paul balances out that picture by saying that we are also to be like fathers. He says, we worked hard, we scolded our spiritual kids, and we led the way. We loved, we sacrificed, we held you to a standard, and we made good on our promises because we saw you through the eyes of a father. And a good mother is tender, but a good father is tough. So a good pastor has to be both. It has to be both. And, and Paul became both when it came to all the churches he planted. Let's turn for a moment back to our scripture reading this morning, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's look at that passage. And here Paul shows us what a spiritual father sounds like. Listen to the tone. Listen to what he says here. He fluctuates from warmth to sternness and back and forth all throughout this passage. Look at what he says, starting in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, I birthed you into the spiritual kingdom, but not as a mother, as a father. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul was a consistent preacher. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. I'm going to see what they're made of. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Notice Paul calls them his beloved children, and he assures them that his goal is to admonish them. It's to help them, not to shame them. He's not putting them down. He's pulling them up by holding their feet to the fire. He calls them out. He says, some of you are arrogant. You talk a big talk, but we will see how big you are when I come down there. Before saying the choice is yours. I mean, what do you want? Do you want a hug or do you want a spanking? Because those are your two options. Verse 21 says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, a rod of discipline, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Depending on the person and the temperature of their heart, they might say either one. They might say, uh, I'll take gentleness, Dad, please. 
Come in gentleness. Or they might say, I don't care. Give me the rod. Let's see what you got, old man. It depends on the person. It depends on their heart. And he leaves it up to them as to how he will come to them. You see, shepherds have a responsibility to be both, to bring both, depending on the situation. There are times when a pastor needs to be gentle, like a nursing mother. He needs to be tender and affectionate. And honestly, if if we're going to be completely honest, that's the easy part. That is much, much easier because it's so much harder to bring a rod to the meeting, to come in knowing you're going to have to discipline this person. When a pastor needs to be tough, when he has to look the person in the eye and he has to say the hard thing that nobody in the room wants to say. But that's the guardianship of pastoral ministry. That's the responsibility of every shepherd. God is our father, yes, but he has also given the church men to oversee our souls, to care for the church's members like a father would care for his own kids. That's number one. That's the first heading. And the first truth that we have here concerning pastoral ministry, the guardianship of pastoral ministry. Number two, we go from guardianship to the grind of pastoral ministry, the grind of pastoral ministry, the day in, the day out. What are the tasks involved in ministry? Look at the first half of verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. This is the heart and soul, the meat and potatoes, the daily grind of pastoral ministry. And this is precisely what a faithful shepherd does. With three participles, Paul gives us the three necessary ingredients for a job well done in ministry. For starters, we're told the guiding shepherd corrects. That's the first participle. He corrects. He says, we exhorted each one of you. Notice that qualifying phrase that Paul includes with this first task. He says, we exhorted each one of you. Each one of you. That specific phrase has been pulled to the front of the sentence in Greek. It has an emphatic position because Paul wants to emphasize the fact that he and the others, they came alongside each person within the church individually. They cared enough to address each person where they needed met. They didn't just preach to the crowd. It wasn't nebulous. In other words, the shepherds knew their sheep. Their ministry was personal, not passive. Now we have to say a few things about that. Because churches do come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? I mean, we don't know how large the church was in Thessalonica. We know very little about the people he's talking to. We do know that the city housed over 200,000 people. 200,000 people. It's roughly 10 times larger than the city of Arlington. And we know that according to Acts 17, that Paul and his friends, they were turning the world upside down, and they were setting the entire city on fire. They they were turning it into into an uproar. So it's likely that this congregation that he's writing to, it's very similar to ours. In fact, it might have even been a lot bigger. The last church that I worked for in Southern California had over 6,000 members. I remember there was another church down the road that had over 20,000 members. Before I attended 
that church. I, I was a member of a church back in Indiana that's slightly smaller than ours. So a church is a church, but they all come in all shapes and sizes. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this, how can a pastor, even in our context, how can a pastor possibly know every member of the church well enough to minister at this level, at this level, to personally come alongside each person, to exhort, encourage, and charge them unto holiness? I mean, think about my last church, John MacArthur's church. Do you think John MacArthur spends his Wednesday afternoons calling 6,000 members to check up on them? No. I was a member of that church for five years, and I can probably count on one hand the number of times I met the man. And I was on staff. Does that make him a terrible, faithless pastor? Of course not. Of course not. Should he have made an even bigger effort to come alongside each member of his larger flock? And by not memorizing my name, Hans Kaufman, does that make him a failure? At least in light of this passage? Of course not. He is a faithful shepherd, surrounded by faithful shepherds. Truthfully, it doesn't matter how big or small a church might be. It is virtually impossible for one man to be in everyone's life all the time. It's impossible, unless the church consists entirely of that man's immediate family. So how can a pastor come alongside everyone in the church? What's the secret? Tell us, Paul. Well, the truth is, he can't. He can't. And I'll even go a step further. He shouldn't. He shouldn't. Why? Because thankfully, that is not how Christ has designed the leadership structure of his church. That's not how he's done it. Remember when we started this chapter, we talked about how there is only one office and three titles. And that is so important, so important for us to hold on to, that the elder, the pastor, the overseer, they are all the same person. Three titles for one position. The pastor is an elder, an elder is an overseer, an overseer is a pastor. They are all the same. That's why I sometimes jokingly call John Ecker Pastor John. Yes, you knew I was going to single you out this morning. I've only done it three times so far. But that's why I call him Pastor John, because that's exactly what he is. He is an elder. He is an overseer. He is a pastor. Three titles, one office. So here's the good news. Your church, First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington, doesn't have one shepherd. In fact, you don't even have two shepherds. You have six. Six shepherds plus one semi-retired shepherd who can run circles around all of us. <laughs> you see, Christ has designed his church to be led by more than one shepherd. And that is so important. That's why it is so important for there to be elders, plural, appointed at every church. God never intended for one man to minister to everyone all the time, personally. A man can want that. A man can desire that. He can die trying to do that, but he can't have that. And it's wrong for a man to place that expectation upon himself and for us to put that expectation on him as well. Because a healthy church has a plurality of elders who shoulder the responsibility together. We can see that principle. It's all throughout the New Testament. 
But it's even implied here in our text. Notice Paul doesn't say, I exhorted each one of you. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, we did. We exhorted each one of you. It was a group effort among these missionary church planners. And it needs to be a group effort among the church's pastor elders as well. Paul highlights this this shared pastoral care for each person of the church. And he makes sure that each person is covered individually, but not by himself, by the team of elders, the team of shepherds that were all together planting that church. And he qualifies this word exhorted, exhorted, that first participle in the list. This word is a a broad word and it's found all throughout the Bible. It's that common word, perikaleo. It means to call someone. And it is translated multiple ways throughout the New Testament. It means to exhort, to encourage, to appeal, to urge. Depending on the context, this word will sometimes be translated encourage, and other times it'll be translated warn. Imagine that, one word. At one point it's encouraging, and the other word it's warning. And it's all dependent upon the context. Here the translators went with the word exhort because a father's responsibility requires correction. Like a father with his children, the shepherd is obligated to passionately warn against danger, address weakness, and correct error. It's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. You know, we love words like encourage, edify, and comfort. We love those words. I have yet to meet anyone who loves the word correct, at least when it's coming at them. I don't know anyone who loves the word rebuke or reproof or discipline. Even when it comes to little things, I'm still waiting to find that person, to meet that person who just loves to be told they are wrong. I have a feeling they aren't out there. Like the night when Thomas Edison attended a dinner party. And at one point, the Toastmaster rose to his feet, started praising him for his many inventions. And he recalled several achievements that spent most of his time, he he just kept going on and on about one invention particularly. And that's Edison's talking machine. He just kept talking and talking about Edison's talking machine. Until finally, when he had finished, the old inventor rose to his feet. He smiled to his guests and he gently said, I thank the gentleman for his kind remarks, but I must insist on a correction. You see, God invented the talking machine. I only invented the first one that can be shut off. (laughs) If there's one thing we hate more than being told what to do, it's being corrected. And yet, Proverbs 13.1 tells us, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Ecclesiastes 7.5 tells us, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. And Proverbs 15.31 says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Godly, biblical correction is a good thing. A good dad will passionately exhort his kids. He will passionately encourage his kids, but through sternness, through correction, through discipline. 
He will warn against danger. He will address weaknesses and he will correct error because he loves his kids and he doesn't want to see his kids suffer. The same is true for the elders of the church. A good pastor will passionately exhort the people who are under his care. That's the first participle and the first necessary ingredient for a job well done in ministry. The guiding shepherd, he comes alongside each member and he corrects. Number two, the guiding shepherd comforts. He comforts. He says, we encouraged you. This word means to console. It means to comfort someone who is discouraged. It means to come alongside and cheer up someone who has lost their will. And life is hard. It's difficult. We all need someone to encourage us, to come alongside us, to comfort us, to console us when we're hurting. Like the man who had been fired from his profession for an indiscretion. So he took work as a hod carrier. That's someone who carries bricks for bricklayers and stonemasons. It was a massive step down, and it was a hard job. But it put food on the table, and that's what he needed more than anything. But instead of going to the office each day, he found himself hauling loads of concrete block up and down to the fifth level of a construction site. His lack of experience had already made him the butt of several jokes. And it was obvious that the foul-mouthed foreman who was over him just hated him, hated his guts. After three weeks, he decided he was done. He couldn't take it anymore. I'll work until my lunch break, he thought to himself. After that, I'm done. I'm going home. I just can't handle any more of this. But shortly before noon, the foreman, he came around with the paychecks. And this time, he, he handed him his envelope, but he said the first civil thing that he had ever said to the man in three weeks. He said, hey, there's a woman working in the front office who knows you. She says that she takes care of your kids sometimes. And the man was baffled. So he asked her, who is this woman? It turns out that this woman is, is the same lady who worked in his nursery at church. The foreman could care less, so he went on with his rounds. But when the hog carrier opened his envelope, he discovered a handwritten note next to his check. It read, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. He stared at the note, just astonished at God's timing. He didn't even know that this woman worked for the company, and yet here he is at his lowest hour, and there she is giving him the comfort and the encouragement that he needed to keep on going. So he went back to his wheelbarrow, and he found the strength to haul another load of concrete blocks up to the fifth floor of the construction site. It's incredible. What a kind word. What a, a five-minute phone conversation. What an encouraging note can do. I mean, friends, we all need correction. All of us do. But we also need comfort. Some fathers are cruel and harsh and way out of balance. They exasperate their children. And they refuse to bend down and ever help them up. Unfortunately, some shepherds are just as one-sided. I mean, all they do is fight, fight, fight. They scold and rebuke and correct week in and week out. And just like the heavy-handed father who treats his kids that way, they lose their people. A pastor who is 
all tender and never tough, is a wimp who tolerates sin. The pastor who is all tough and never tender is a bully who beats up the sheep. If you want to be faithful, you got to be both. You got to have both. You can't be neither, and you can't be one or the other. You have to be both tough and tender. There is a time for correction, and there is a time for comfort. But there's one more essential ingredient for faithfulness found here in the text. The guiding shepherd, he corrects and he comforts. Finally, he charges. He charges. Paul says, we charged you. This final participle is the strongest of the three. It means to advocate for something of great importance. But more than that, it means to insist that something is done. To put your foot down. To insist that something be done about it. This isn't a please and thank you word. It's a clean your room or else sort of word. He's saying that sometimes your leaders need to sit down with you and insist on your obedience to Christ. Insist on it. Obviously, this doesn't apply to anything outside of God's word. If an elder charges you to clean his car, he is out of line. Completely out of line. But if he insists that you turn away from your sin, pursue holiness, in that moment, he is fulfilling his ministry. He is doing right by you. He is doing exactly what God has called him to do. It's not only appropriate for the elders to meddle in your private sins, it's expected. And we should welcome those charges. We should welcome those charges because the shepherds have been given that position to insist on our growth in Christ. Like a father who insists that his son be honest or punctual or respectable. The elders have every right to take the standard of God's word and insist on compliance. In fact, we are obligated before God to implore you to believe and obey his word. Much like the city of Aachen, Germany, Germany's westernmost city, during World War II. I'm a big World War II buff. I love reading about it. During World War II, Aachen was surrounded by the American forces. Hitler sent orders to the Nazi commander in the area, and he told him, you have to stand your ground and die defending the city. But the American commander, he gave the city another opportunity. He said, no, 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 I'm going to give you one more chance to surrender before the invasion. The lieutenant general sent an ultimatum to the Nazi commander and also to the mayor of the city that at that time contained about 165,000 people. Thousands of leaflets were dropped to the troops and the citizens of Aachen, urging them, charging them, insisting that they surrender to avoid so much needless bloodshed. Here's what the leaflets said. They read, Aachen is encircled. American troops surround the city. The German command cannot relieve you. People of Aachen, the time has come for honorable surrender. We Americans do not wage war on innocent uh, civilians. But if the leaders insist on further sacrifice, we have no course but to destroy your city. There is no time left to lose. On our airfields, bombers are waiting for final orders to take off. Our artillery surrounding the city is ready to fire. People of Aachen, act quickly. Tomorrow may be too late. There is only one choice, immediate surrender or complete destruction. 
Unfortunately, the Germans did not surrender. So that great city was destroyed. Christian, in the same way, God insists on our surrender. He insists that we evacuate, that we flee from our sin, and we find safety in him. And a faithful shepherd will correct, comfort, and charge the people of God to act quickly, to believe and obey. This is the heart and soul, the meat and potatoes, the grind of pastoral ministry. This is precisely what a faithful shepherd does. He is both tough and tender, and he refuses to take no for an answer. But we still have one heading left. Paul has given us the guardianship and the grind of pastoral ministry, and next time we'll finish the verse out with the goal of pastoral ministry. Well, every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, all I need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Has anyone here ever heard someone say that? Does anyone here want to admit if you've ever said that before or not? I think there was a time when I might have. Every once in a while, you hear someone say, all I need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I don't need the church. I don't need a sermon. I don't need a shepherd. And they justify their detachment with cliche statements like, Jesus is my shepherd. Or I have the best teacher. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures for me and so forth. And that all sounds good. It sounds really spiritual and sufficient. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Why? Because we all need spiritual mother-fathers. We do. We need exhortation and encouragement. We need people in our lives who will correct us and comfort us and charge us to live worthy of our calling. We need faithful shepherds who will love us enough to tell us what we need to hear and not what we want to hear. Men who will care for us like they do their own kids, like a father would, his own children. And we need to submit to that instruction. If it comes from the word of God, we need to follow their lead. And there are lots of ways that we can do that. We can start by praying for our pastors, praying for our elders. Pray that the Lord would protect us, that he would strengthen us, that he would lead us in the right direction, the direction that each of us need to be led to. So often we want to change the pastor. But the best way to do that is to simply go above the pastor's head. Just go above his head. Go to his boss. Go to the God that changes men's hearts and log your complaints with him. Robert Harris once said, if you want a better pastor, you can get one by praying for the pastor you already have. So take it to the Lord. And while you're there, thank him for loving you enough to give you shepherds. And then turn things around and ask him to work in your heart, to reveal things there, to soften your heart towards the men that he has made responsible for you. Ask yourself, how well do I receive correction, comfort, and charges when one of them sees something that is off in me? Prayer is an excellent place to start. We can also follow our leader's lead by making their job easier. They say, now Hans, You've crossed the line. You are very self-serving here. Well, no, hear me out. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders 
and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, God says, you don't want to be a rock in your pastor's shoe. He says that. You don't want them groaning over you. When your name comes up in a conversation, you want them to light up. You want them to watch over your soul with joy because in the end, keeping the pastor humble is only going to hurt yourself. It's only going to hurt you. Sucking the joy out of his ministry, out of the ministry of the elders, it has no advantage to you whatsoever. None. So we need to make their job easier, much easier. Along with that, we can then go out of our way to encourage them. We can pray for them. We can make their job easier. We can also encourage them, especially when they're not around. When whispers and complaints and grumblings about the pastor's shortcomings come your way like they did in Thessalonica, you have a choice to make. You can either sympathize and agree with the person and hang the poor guy out to dry, or you can take that opportunity to do what a shepherd does and, and minister to that person in the moment. You can correct them, comfort them, and charge them to be more like Christ. Remind them that we are to do all things without grumbling and complaining, as in all things. Remind them that God has given us shepherds for a reason, and they ain't one. Remind them that the shepherds we do have are not perfect, that they are men, that they have feet of clay, that they fall infinitely short of the good shepherd. And thank goodness we have a good shepherd who cares for us all. And then take them to the scriptures and charge them to walk in the spirit, to be known for their love, for their joy, their peace, their patience, their kindness, their goodness, their faithfulness, their gentleness, and their self-control. To stop complaining and start contributing to put on humility, and to come alongside their shepherds because their shepherds want to come alongside them. Remind them of the truth and minister to them the same way that you have been ministered to. After all, that's why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 2. He couldn't make the trip. He couldn't just move back into Thessalonica and minister to these people one-on-one. He may have wanted to, as much as he wanted to do that with every church that he planted, but he couldn't. People within the church were complaining about his ministry, but writing a letter and setting the record straight doesn't fix anything without the people in the church who will then, in turn, correct, comfort, and charge others to do likewise. If the entire congregation is bitter against Paul, chapter 2 isn't going to make a lick of difference. Shepherds need people who will stand in the gap and encourage others to stand with them. So there you have it. Three simple ways for us to follow our spiritual leaders. We can pray for them, we can make their job easier, and we can go out of our way to encourage them, especially, especially when they aren't around. And we should do all of that. But friend, if you really want to see your church grow, if you want to see your leadership thrive, and your walk with Christ flourish, then the best thing, the absolute most essential best thing that you could ever possibly do is change. Change.
a little book I highly recommend. It's titled, The Book Your Pastor Wishes You Would Read But Is Too Embarrassed to Ask by Christopher Ashe. Despite the title, I'm not too embarrassed to ask you to read it. It's not, it's not about me personally, so I commend it to you. At one point, he says, the very best thing you can do for your pastor and I for mine is to repent daily of sin and trust afresh daily in Jesus. Friend, my ambition is to see you become more like Christ. That's my hope. I'm not here to grow the church. I'm here to see you grow. And if you really want to hurt me and the other elders, it's simple. Just continue in sin. Those who refuse to change and choose to hurt themselves and others with their sin, those are the ones who reduce a shepherd to a crust of bread. Those are the ones who are, in a sense, intolerable, just personally, internally. Those are the ones that keep us up at night. But those who repent and submit to the authority of God's word, they find something more than forgiveness. They increase the joy and the effectiveness of their church's leadership. In that same book, Ash writes, joy in pastoral ministry is therefore fueled, perhaps most deeply of all, by signs of a local church who are walking in the truth together. That is so true. As we saw last week, the good shepherd loves his sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. And as under shepherds, we are called to follow his lead. And we are called then to follow the under shepherd's lead so long as they lead us back to Christ. So let's do what we can do. Let's do everything that we can do to pray for and encourage our leaders until each of them looks like a father who corrects, comforts, and charges his own kids. So when they bring us the word of God, we will abandon our sin and we will change. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for being our Father. Thank you for sending your Son to die in our place. Thank you for adopting us into your divine family. Thank you for the work that you've started in each and every person here who is saved. And if there is anyone here today who has not been adopted into your family, God, I pray that you would change their hearts by the power of the gospel. Lord, would you rip the blinders off of their eyes? Would they see the majesty and the glory and the power that you have put on display at the cross of Christ, how he took our sins upon himself, how he paid the penalty for them so that we would not have to on that final day? God, would you work in their hearts? And would you bring them to saving faith today? Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, God, I, I pray that we would never forget that sacrifice that your son has made on our behalf. We love you, Lord. We thank you for these, these wonderful truths that we have looked at today. Lord, please protect our leaders, guide our leaders, help each and every pastor, elder, overseer for this church. And Lord, I pray that we would be an encouragement to them, that we would pray for them daily, that we would do everything we can to foster and encourage the ministry here at this church. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. 
We give you all the glory today in your name. Amen.